You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics The Nom. I thought love was only true in fairy tales. And for someone else, but not for me. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the 1980s Marvel Comics series, The Nom. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. This time we are on the penultimate issue of Ed Marks' tour of duty in the Vietnam War. Next issue he will be headed home on what is was referred to as a freedom bird, but this time out he is going to be in the middle of what was a heavy amount of combat, known as Operation Cedar Falls. This issue also marks the first issue of the series where Michael Golden was not providing some sort of artwork, either through breakdowns or through the framing devices he did in number 7. And next issue will mark his very last in the series. He would come back to do a few covers toward the end of Doug Murray's run on the title, which would end at issue 42. And there will be times when his art is definitely missed. Here, John Severin will be filling in. Our song this time around is I'm a Believer, which was originally written and performed by Neil Diamond, but this version, which hit number one on the Billboard charts in January 1967, was recorded by the Monkees, who were at the height of their television popularity. I do believe that Mickey Dolenz is on the vocals in this one. From Cedar Falls with Love came out on August 18, 1987, had a November 1987 cover date. Doug Murray is the writer, John Severin, artist, Phil Felix, Letters and Colors, Mike Higgins, editor, Larry Hama, consulting editor, Pat Redding, managing editor, Tom DeFalco, editor-in-chief. The cover, which is by Golden, shows members of the 23rd pointing their rifles into the jungle. Uh, one of them well, actually looks like maybe a few dead bodies laying on top of, uh, of a tank. And... Uh, one of them, it looks like Rob, is pointing into the jungle where uh, where the fire was obviously coming from. The, uh, the the background is all green. It's a really, really, really nice looking cover. Very well composed. January 1967, the op- aftermath of Operation Cedar Falls, which is the village of Ben Sook, is about to disappear from the face of the earth. The men of the 23rd stand down and eat, as well as get a mail call before they have to head back out. Rob gets letters from home. Ed Marks begins to write a letter to his parents, which actually takes up most of the story. And rather than describe the story, I'm going to do what I did like with the second feature in issue eight. I'm going to read it because with the exception of a few things here and there that I might have to describe to, to read, this, this kind of reads a little bit. This reads pretty well. Dear Mom and Dad, I guess you could call me a combat veteran now. I'm sure that getting short, that means I don't have long before I get to go home. I've learned a lot in any case. I'm sure not like the movies. You don't see the enemy and aim to hit him. You just shoot at all all your bullets in his direction and hope you hit something. I've learned to always keep something to eat handy. If you wait for the cooks to catch up with you in the bush, you'll end up real hungry. Remember I used to have a little discomfort flying? Well, over here we move around in slicks. That's slang for helicopters, Mom all the time, and I've gotten a little better. Although I must admit, I'm still bothered a little from time to time. Anyhow, like I said, we fly these Hueys almost everywhere, and when it's a big operation like this one, you wouldn't want to believe how many choppers fly out together. Of course, we don't walk straight in. And we see uh, artillerymen shouting fire, and fire being artillery fire going, um, going off toward a village. The artillery boys soften us things up for us a little, and they generally do a pretty good job. Of course, 
we have to move right into our LZs. That's landing zones, Mom. And it's important that we secure them. That's army talk for making sure they're safe, Mom. Once the LZ, landing zone, remember, Mom, is secure, we start to move our objective. More army talk for whatever the brass, sorry, the officers who play the mission have in mind. Of course, there's always the possibility of snipers. But our covering choppers are usually there in a hurry. Still, it's a nervous sort of time, even with your friends around. Now we break for one of them saying to the other, now all we've got to do is stop anyone from getting past. Piece of cake. On this mission, we're invading and neutralizing a suspected Viet Cong strong point. We do that by evacuating the villagers. Now there's an old man on a bike, and uh, one of the guys says, he's headed for the jungle, do what we do. Dang it, old man, back off! And they, they end up shooting the guy uh, off of the bike, killing him. So we do that by evacuating villagers and ensuring that no Viet Cong can escape to the jungle. That was my job. Helping to cordon the perimeter. Let me tell you, it wasn't, easy, it wasn't an easy job, but on the whole, we managed to do it. We break again into the action where the guys uh, spot a sniper, because one, one of the other guys gets hit, and uh, they start shooting at it and get the sniper. Once the village was secure, we began to gather the villagers and get them to, together to board the choppers. Then, with the villagers safe, we could check for VC supplies, and let me tell you, we found a ton of stuff, including enough ammo to kill a thousand Americans, if they got to use it. Meanwhile, our intelligence boys were talking to the villagers, getting them ready for their new homes. Then the engineers moved in with their heavy equipment, including something special, a tank dozer, they called it, to use when there were snipers around. It was really a sight to see. They just rolled right over that village until there was hardly anything left. And there's the break-in action for another sniper. This one was in a tunnel. They, they managed to nail him. Then a funny thing happened. As the villagers began to clear the village, some of the trap doors began to open, and VC, that, that's Vietnam Cong, Mom, they're generally the ones we fight, came out shooting at the engineers. But we managed to get them before we, we, they could do any real damage. We even got a couple of prisoners for intelligence. Now what happens here is that they find a wounded VC, intel interrogate him by by beating him, and it looks like it's the uh, it looks like it's the uh, the the ARVN and the and the U.S. troops are doing it, and eventually uh, they can't really get anything out of him, so they shoot him. Our intelligence officers are pretty efficient, but in this case, I don't think they got any information at all. After that, it was just a question of cleanup. The engineers here didn't take long at all. Ed looks up at the choppers taking off. He says, "A whole village in less than a day." Sweet mother of God. The guy sitting next to him gets hit by a gets hit by sniper fire, and Ed starts shooting it towards the sniper and screams, "Medic, medic, oh God, medic!" and and Rob's like, "Are you okay, Ed?" and and Ed says, "I keep forgetting my brain keeps blocking it out." And he's probably talking about Albergo, and he also says, "I also keep forgetting that a man has that much blood in him," and he thinks, "How do I tell my folks about that?" And then Sarge says, "Come on, boys, it's time to go home." Um, Rob gives him a candy bar, and uh, the name palm comes in, and then they just. Get on the get on a chopper and they head out and Ed Ed picks up his letter again. So that about does it. I'm writing this on a chopper going back to base camp. The operation is over. The village has been pacified. Look for it in the six o'clock news in a couple of days. Sarge turns to the guys in the chopper and says, "Watch this. This should be really be something." And they see this kind of wasteland area, the area that they laid waste to, uh, which held all the tunnels. And it's been lined with explosives, and then the second-to-last page of the story is a full-page splash of the that part of the jungle just exploding from underneath where they've detonated the network of tunnels, and Ed going, oh my god.
And uh, Sarge says, well, we couldn't let the VC have all those explosives back, could we? So the choppers head out, and Ed finishes up his letter. We'll be back at base soon, and I'm tired. But I want to get out, get this out, so I'll close out for now. Write soon. Those letters are important to me. And stay well. Your loving son, Ed. And the last panel, uh, as the chopper pulls away, is uh, a VC who was left behind looking out at the detonated network of tunnels and just glaring. Now, John Severn's art is a lot more straightforward than Golden's was, and it still works here because his artwork is detailed. I took a look over at Mike's Amazing World and saw that in addition to a run on the Incredible Hulk in the very early 70s, he has a significant amount of experience with war and Western comics, so this is a pretty good fit. And he gets Ed Marks down pretty well. I like how the letter home is used to convey Marks being part of what was an enormous operation, which is something I'll get to later. And this is one particular perspective we haven't gotten so far. We've gotten jungle sweeps, tunnel sweeps, nights in the town, history lessons, patrolling cities, and major operations, but we haven't gotten an idea of what he's telling the folks back home. So the voiceover with this works pretty well. And admittedly, it makes writing a summary for a podcast easy. (laughs) Anyway, we see that Marx is not as green as he once was, but in all of this time here, he still hasn't gotten used to a lot of the blood in the action. He still seems pretty amazed that they can mount a pretty large-scale evacuation of a village because this is part of a huge effort to destroy a key VC stronghold, and the army wants to make sure civilians aren't harmed. But not everyone is a hero here. When Marx is talking about the efficiency of the intelligence officers, he's glossing over the reality, which is that they captured someone who was VC, and when they couldn't get anything out of him, executed him there on the spot. The sniper shooting one of the guys near sitting near them emphasizes that things come out of nowhere in the war and reminds Ed as well as us what he went through a mere few months or in our case a few issues ago. And when all is said and done, Severn rightfully takes a full page to blow up the jungle again, emphasizing the enormity of the operation they were undertaking. I also like how there's one VC soldier staring him out, out among the ruins of the village. He's angry. He's out there. He won't forget this. Again, it shows how Murray is trying to show... He's trying to be objective. He's trying to show heroism victory, but also show the other side. And I really do appreciate that. Overall, even though the artist changed, the writing was still strong. So it looks like Murray's going to take Marks out on a good note. Uh, and, and I'll be back in a moment with historical context letters and ads. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen. And I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. And we're back. Operation Cedar Falls was a massive sweep of an area of South Vietnam that was known as the Iron Triangle and which was undertaken in January of 1967 by 30,000 U.S. Viet and South Vietnamese troops. 
This area, the Iron Triangle, was an area of 120 square miles outside of Saigon in the Binduang province and was given the name because it was a stronghold for the Viet Cong and had been a Viet Minh and Viet Cong stronghold since the First Indochina War with the French. The operation basically entailed troops going into the area doing their best to chase out any enemy that they could find. This involved sweeping villages, but also searching through the very large underground of the tunnel network that the VC were using for transport, cover, and ambushes, something that we've seen repeatedly throughout the book so far, especially in issue number 8. Another huge piece to this operation was the deportation of entire villages to newly established villages outside of the province. The army would evacuate these villages, just like they saw here, and then blow up anything left behind as an effort to undermine the VC. Ben Suk was where most of the operation, much of the operation started, as it was one of the stronger areas of the Iron Triangle, being a major political area as well as a major supply area. In fact, it was heavily fortified, so the army put quite a number of troops on the ground. The attack on this village, which we see in this issue, was actually quite a success. The Americans managed to take the VC by surprise and easily secure the village. Afterwards, they brought in the South Vietnamese army to help with the intelligence gathering and the interrogation from there, and were able to uncover and destroy an enormous network of VC tunnels in the area. However, those who were arrested and interrogated were not very important personnel, and they were mostly low-ranking. The villagers, as well as many of their belongings, including livestock, were taken from Ben Suk and relocated to other areas. After it was completed, the Army Corps of Engineers began dismantling the village, first bulldozing and burning buildings, subjecting it to heavy bombardment that would help collapse tunnels within the village. Then the surrounding jungle was defoliated and bombarded as well. The relocation of the villagers to the village of Phu Loi did not go as well as planned. Although the United States did act as humanely as possible while relocating the citizens of Ben Suk, many suffered hardships and harbored resentment afterwards. There are also conflicting reports on the humaneness of the treatment, with some villagers from the area claiming years later that they weren't allowed to bring anything with them, and many were simply killed by the army. Jonathan Shell, a journalist, would write a pretty extensive piece called A Reporter at Large in the New Yorker that discussed the details of the evacuation and the relocation of the village and confirms that for all the humaneness insisted upon by the United States Army, miscommunication between the United States and South Vietnamese armies about where villagers will be located, and the timing of such, led to the villagers of Phu Loi forced to house the villages of Ben Suk and a deterioration of their overall condition. After staying at Fuloi, the villagers were then sent to what were called New Life Villages, which were basically towns built to house deportees. These New Life Villages did not have a very good reputation. The conditions within them are often described as quite bad. Operation Cedar Falls as a whole was considered a success in the short term, but because the VC maintained a presence in the Iron Triangle and built that presence back up by the end of the war, the operation was not considered very successful in the long run. Casualties, however, on the American side were light, with only 72 dead and 337 injured. Also in January 1967, from January 6th to the 15th, Operation Deckhouse 5 took place along the Mekong Delta River. This is an operation by the Marines along with ARVN forces that was an effort to sweep that area in hopes of capturing a large number of prisoners of war. The U.S. even built the POW camp to hold the number of POWs they were anticipating. Unfortunately, the number captured was incredibly low, and therefore the operation is described as a pretty much a failure, being a waste of time and forces, especially because of the amount of forces used. January 14th, back home, was the Human Bee Inn, a basically a large hippie gathering. 
this took place in Golden Gate Park in San Francisco and was a big moment for the counterculture. It would actually bring together quite a number of different kind of factions or tribes of the San Francisco counterculture, and it gave rise to the movement that would be a very large voice uh, in protest of the Vietnam War at home. Of course, the summer of 1967 would also be known as the Summer of Love. I'm sure we will eventually get to that as we get further and further into the NAM with, uh, with other issues here. In other news, January 19, 15, 1967, Green Bay defeats Kansas City in the first AFL-NFL World Championship, otherwise known as Super Bowl One. On January 18th, Albert DeSalvo is sentenced to life in prison for the series of murders he was convicted of committing as the Boston Strangler. And on January 27th, the Apollo 1 fire kills Gus Grissom, Edward Higgins White, and Roger Chafee. Uh, A fire breaks out on their launch pad at Cape Canaveral. Incoming for this month, moving on to the letters column. We have uh, not a lot that get responses. Let me see. Uh, Most of them are about issue 9. Thank you for nom nom number 9. The death of Mike was undoubtedly a traumatic experience. Both for the characters and the readers, it has been a long time since I was saddened by the death of a comic book character. His death wasn't portrayed dramatically like in other comic books, but rather as just a horrifying scene showing the anguish of the face on Ed Marks. Yet in a way, he was a hero. He was serving his country more than can be said for war protesters of that time who, if Mike had survived, might have called him a pig and baby killer. Well, he's gone now. All that is left of his service in Nam is his buddy's memories and his name somewhere on that black wall in Washington, D.C. So long, Michael Burgo Jr., we will miss you. Uh, that was Jason Kasky of Milo, Iowa. Drew Van Wick of Sheboygan says, How could you kill Mike? He was my favorite character. I could live with Cobra Commander's death. That's what you get when you play power games. But Mike? Issue number nine, you said that uh, some of the names are real. Is Mike's name on the wall in Washington, D.C.? I haven't been there, but I've heard about it. Someday I'll see it. I really shouldn't complain about Mike's death so much, because if you want a mag of this nature to be realistic, the good guys can't always win. The only place where the sun always shines is on TV. Are you going to show other aspects of the war, like the social turmoil in the States, draft dodging, parental reactions to children's deaths, special ops, etc.? Until Ed Marks becomes president, make mine marvel. I think, uh, basically, they, they decided to respond once. Um, we got dozens of letters talking about the death of Mike and how readers felt about it. We try to keep the nom as realistic as possible, and in the real war, men died just like Mike did, suddenly, unexpectedly, tragedy, tragically. It always had other effects as well. The friends of those who died. Keep reading people. Always talk about the war being hell. This is one sort of thing. Is one of the reasons why. It's Doug Murray. Dear sir, we have one from New Zealand. The nom was recommended to me by an American friend of our family. He served with the 101st Airborne in Vietnam. I enjoy reading your magazine. I think my dad does too. He served in the Australian Army as a tunnel rat in 7071. I would really like to see some mention of the Australians or the New Zealanders in your comic. The Aussies were in Vietnam for over 10 years, and they must have done a good job as they were highly decorated, winning four Victoria Crosses and also the U.S. Presidential Citation and the U.S. Distinguished Cross, among many others. The New Zealand Army was also in the war for eight years. I have a local subscription to the NAM, and I always look forward to my monthly copy. Do you or any others responsible for the comic serving in Vietnam? So with what units? Uh, dear Lawrence, Lawrence Mickelson of Auckland, Way back in number one, I did a story in which the 23rd joined up with an Aussie outfit for a mission. Such things will also happen in future issues when the missions allow. I know the Kiwis did good work in Vietnam. I saw them doing it. Thanks for the interest, Doug. We have uh, one last note to our readers. Recently, I was given an award by Bravo, Brotherhood Rally of American Veteran Organizations in conjunction with their big 
Vietnam Vets Parade in Los Angeles. I wanted to take this opportunity to thank them for their recognition and tell them how much the award means to me com coming from other vets. In the best sense, my brothers. Thanks. And then we have, uh, they say, oops, we goofed last issue. We mistakenly printed the glossary from 10. Sorry. Our nom notes, our hat and out leaving, putting on our hats and trucking. Hot chow, food, food that was cooked rather than concentrated ration bars or emergency food. Huey's, the UH-1 helicopter made by Bell, the standard chopper of the U.S. Army in Vietnam. Moskoshi, right away or right now. Napalm, a chemical that creates a wall of flame used for destroying large areas or stubborn American least stubborn enemy strong points. Pacified. Villages are areas where the VC have been removed or beaten back. A slick, a lightly armed or armored Huey. And of course, the Viet Cong, South Vietnamese guerrillas, infiltrating various areas and trying to remove the government and its foreign allies. Ads. We have M&Ms again. We have Zittles once more. Let's see our Zits this time. Paperback knee, the kind of acne you'd hide behind a book. Oppo Zits, two matching pimples, one on each cheek. We have George Brett's Secrets of Baseball. George Brett is going to show you how to improve your game. The 1980 American League MVP and the two-time league batting champ sells its secret of incredible 13, 314 batting averages, 200 home runs, 1,000 RBIs, and 2,000 hits, 1495. You fill it out. Oh, you can get it on beta. Yeah. Beta. We're still selling beta. New England Comics ad. Another mention of Action Force. Uh, double page spread for TSR games, uh, Gazetteer, Dungeons and Dragons accessory, and Gamma Rotters. Much to say about that. I'm not a big gamer, to be honest with you. Uh, there is an ad. The f the bottom ad is a is a CBG. Uh, no, not a CBG. Uh, Direct Comics and Games in Los Angeles, California. But the top half it says has a picture of. One, two, three, four kids, and the one, the fourth one across, it has the word "muty" written across it in red, and it says it's 1987. Do you know what your children are? Paid for by the citizens in support of the Mutant Registration Act. I believe this is a teaser for Fall of the Mutants, uh, which was which would be coming down the pike within the next month or two. I really do uh, what like this ad though, because it's a play on the ad that was. Very prevalent at that time. It's 10 p.m. Do you know where your children are? So, uh, pretty pretty good advertising, Marvel. In fact, I remember the Fall of the Mutants being advertised really well, but not actually. When I finally read it, I was like underwhelmed, or I think I th thought of something. It was going to be better, or I was thinking I was thinking of something else. We have a hodgepodge ad with Charles Atlas and Magic and uh, Mile High Comics and what have you. Another one, self-defense. Bullpen bulletins. Now we have something about Jim Shooter. The old order changeth. After guiding Marvel Comics to dazzling new creative heights for the past nine and a half years, Jim Shooter has stepped down from his position as editor-in-chief. Unquestionably one of the most talented creative people in the entire comic book industry, Jim was always spearheading the development of new formats, new concepts, and exciting new comic series, like the NOM, X-Factor, Power Pack, The Punisher, Newt Mutants, and others. Marvel produced his very first graphic novels, limited series, and direct-only comics under his superb editorial leadership. His accomplishments are too numerous to list here. Suffice to say, he will be missed. The New Order begins. Our new or editor, Tom Def Editor-in-chief is none other than two-fisted Tom DeFalco, a man who needs no introduction to Marvel the Mesemlid, but who will be really miffed if he doesn't get one. The subject of one of our bullpen profiles a few months back, Tom is a 15-year veteran in the comic business. Since he joined Marvel in 1980, 
He served as the editor of our Spider-Man line of comics and later as the writer of such popular series as The Amazing Spider-Man and Machine Man and Firestar. As our executive editor, he helped establish Marvel's Star Comics line. We're sure you join us in wishing Tom the best of luck in his new job. And that's a nice way of sugarcoating the fact that they fired Jim Shooter's ass. Uh, if you want a whole thing on Shooter and um, what have you, uh, I may have mentioned this before. Go read Marvel Comics' The Untold Story. It's, it's, it's a great, great book. Uh, it, you, will, you will not be disappointed, and it's got, definitely got some great Shooter stories in there. Uh, the Marvel subscription ad actually is a is a comic. It's got Hawkeye and Mockingbird, and he's gonna shoot a comic off of her uh, off of her head or something like that, doing kind of a William Tell thing. And she says, "Why are you aiming high? Are you aiming high?" He says, "Sure am." By saving two seventy five on every Marvel title, you can get a fourteen issue subscription for only eight eight twenty five. That's fifty nine cents per copy for seventy nine seventy five cents in the newsstand. And then he puts a thing through. Arrow through Solo Avengers. Hey, you can't miss with savings like that. Yeah, yeah. On the back cover, we have Meatloaf, humongous rock star of the universe in Heroes, Helping Heroes. Special Olympians are the real heroes. I gotta give them everything I got. But who's gonna help me? We'll help, Meatloaf. But how? You have Spidey, Cat, Grey Hulk, Iron Man, Wolverine, The Thing, Jean Grey, Cyclops, and Thor with a bunch of kids offering their help. He says, buy return to this coupon today! And the superheroes need 250,000 of their friends to help the 1987 International Summer, Summer Special Olympic Games. Please help if you can, and you send them $5 for a record cassette of the official theme song and theme music of the 1987 International Summer Olympic Special Games, which is called A Time for Heroes. And that is going to take us out. Next time, in two weeks, I will be dialing up the very last part of Ed Mark's tour in Vietnam with issue 13 of the NOM. I'll also be covering historical context, letters, and ads. So until then, thank you once again for listening. You have been listening to In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics' The Nom. The Nom and all of the comics associated with it are copyright Marvel Comics, and as this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes, and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Images, clips, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, which you can find at popcultureaffidavit.com. 
feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com and may likely be read on the air as I occasionally do email-centric episodes or segments. Thank you for listening and come back in two weeks for the next chapter in the saga of The Nom.